Thanks to ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and the smartest way to hire. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Content industry is constantly evolving. To keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable has been used by companies like Time Magazine, Group 9 Media, and BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. It lets you manage your entire creative process from ideation to content creation. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. You can try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Recode Media to receive $50 in free credits. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, not at Vox Media headquarters today. I'm here at the Billions Den of uh, Brian Koppelman. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me here. Hey, man. Pleasure. What's happening? This is this is where the magic happens. This is where you co-create Billions. What would we say if there was never, if there were never an MTV Cribs? What would we say? We wouldn't know to say that's where the magic happens. Is that where that came from? I, I think. All so. I know about an MTV Cribs is that's where you go to see what someone's empty fridge looks like. When yeah, but a temporary the, millionaire. The, the the meme before we had memes in the same way. Uh, I didn't realize that's what I was saying. The citing. meme was that people would the first time someone would walk into the bedroom and say, "This is where the magic happens." And then on every episode, someone said it, and then people would say it about their fridge or the game room. Now there may be, um, and I'm sure there will be a site of something earlier, but that is when that expression became. Uh, really part of the lingua franca. See, I brought a pop culture knife to a pop culture gunfight, so I should just stop now. Um, thanks again for having me here, Brian. So um, happy to have you. We're man. just going to skip my standard intro, because you know, you should, if you like the show, you should tell someone else about it. That's all we ask. We're about a month after the last episode of season three. That the last episode aired. Yeah, aired. I guess so maybe. So where are you in, in the cycle now for season four? We are writing season four, Mike. Creative partner David Levine and I and uh, our writing staff are writing and season four, and we're prepping season four. We start shooting in September, so we are a couple months out from beginning to shoot the next season. So explain how this works to people who don't know how TV works. Will you have complete scripts done in September? We will have written six of the 12 episodes before we start shooting, and we will know the story of the second half of the season, too. David and I... Some can, I guess, begin their season without understanding the end of it, but David and I don't understand how to do that. Uh, Plus, we, you guys make seasons where the beginning... I mean, th these are little jewel boxes of shows sometimes. Thanks. Yeah, right? these things have to... Yes, these things have to... What we are starting toward, we have to know what that ending is so that we can, you know, zig and zag and find our way there. And... Um, so we will understand the architecture of the entire season. We already do actually understand the architecture of the whole season. And so the process for us is we start talking about themes. These aren't themes we talk about in public, but themes that we want to explore in the season. And we do that for a few weeks. That starts in the spring while that starts the... starts as soon as, you know, the show is ending and we take a couple weeks and then we start. And this year we didn't even really have a couple weeks because um, we're, we just decided to keep the momentum going. And so we then, uh, then we start to really break it out into, into episodes. And so we have now written the first episode of next season's written done. 
Dave and I wrote that. And we have drafts written by our writers of episodes two and three, and we've now broken the story for four. So we are already, I'm talking to you now, but and I'm already living in the next season of the show, in the middle of the next season you're of there. the show. How much of what you do when you're writing the next season is influenced by how the show played out? You played out in what way? In terms of how what it looked like to you when you were actually watching it on a screen, and then the reception you got from you can't fans we, you, from friends. I was talking to Pendulette about this the other day. I mean, you you can't allow the way the thing lands to influence the way that you do it going forward. I mean, we've been really lucky that each season people have liked people it more and more, it, right? And that. I am somebody who loves reading the recaps of the show. I love listening to um, the podcasts about the show that Mallory Rubin and Sean Fennessy and Bill Simmons and Allison Herman do on The Ringer. And uh, But you have to listen to that stuff and read that stuff um, largely. I mean, I do it largely as not more than a curio. I love when people pick up on the thematics. What it mostly you're engaged. does, you're, you are tweeting. You're yeah, back and forth. Well, if, if some asshole like me copies you on a tweet and with a, with an ill-founded criticism about your tweet, you'll respond to that about the show. You'll respond I'll to engage that. in good humor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like to know it gives what it, what I would say is it it gives us maybe more confidence to just follow tell the story that we want to tell because people watch our show so closely. And there's a community of people watching and talking about it. And what I've seen is that they're really smart and they get it all. The fear one might have is, uh, is if the stuff isn't connecting, uh, if you're not being clear enough, but people get it. And they're, you know, if I make um, an obscure allusion to a moment at minute 12 of a minor movie, or of a move that a certain professional wrestler did, it'll be talked about, written about, people catch it. So the reaction doesn't steer us at all, not even 1%, less than a tenth of a percent, but it does give us the confidence to keep telling the story in exactly the manner. And your, your audience is building, story. so you don't have a fear of like, well, we're losing audience, maybe we need to shake something up, so we you're good there. We don't think about the, like Dave and I don't think about the numbers at all. You must look, right? We just doesn't no? First of all, the way numbers work now has nothing to do with the way they worked when you and I were growing up and watching this stuff, right? People watch, the I mean, great thing about Billions is actually a lot of people watch on Sunday night, but nobody cares. Right. That's not the way that any of these, certainly no premium cable show is in any way judged based on that. I mean, people, they care about how people watch over two weeks, three weeks, a month. By the time there might be month long numbers, I've I don't even ask. Uh, I know what they are and I know that they're strong and I'm happy when Showtime at the end of a season or whenever they um, talk about it, it's great to know that our show is like the number two drama or whatever it is on the network. But again, you cannot look my first movie. The first movie David and I made was Rounders. That movie was a bomb at the box office. Yeah. And has had this incredible life afterwards. So you, you can't get caught up. We'd made a decision a long time ago not to get caught up in that aspect of it. That's do why you, we spent half our life making indie movies. Do you guys assume you're going to have multiple seasons more to run on this? Or do you think each season is potentially our last, so we should write it accordingly? Well, uh, I mean, listen, the television gods could pull the plug at any moment. Yep. I'm not a superstitious person, but I'm certainly not going to say we have all the runway that we want. 
On the other hand, we have a real audience of kind of a fanatical group of people who love the show. Showtime loves the show. They're incredible partners. I certainly know we have a couple more years. So do you think out like we've this. got a two year story? Oh, you have to. We tell? know. The, I mean, yes, we we know how to tell a story through season yeah. seven of the show. You're basically. there. Yeah. You were, I was going to ask you about the, the online community that responds. Um, I listen to the Ringer podcasts. Um, I read some of the write-ups in the New York Times and Vanity Fair. Our friend Helen Rosner has I a newsletter dedicated newsletter to your fantastic, show. Yeah. Although it cracked me up because a couple episodes in, I realized she'd never watched the Godfather movies. Me too. I couldn't understand. Which was crazy. That. Then she did. Yeah, no, I was harassing her constantly. I would just say the, the following things are Godfather references in this episode, Helen. She finally cracked. Um, what do you think about, I mean, obviously you like it, right? Because it shows that people are engaged in your show. It's so fun. I assume it's a new idea for you that there's just, that there's this existing community of media people who are going to create media based on your media. So I was a fanatical, obsessive Mad Men fan. And I read Lasanti and, um, Sepinwall and, um, uh, my what's her name? She's the greatest. She was at Grantland back then too. The third one, Molly Lambert. Uh-huh. I I I would watch the show and I just couldn't wait for their recaps to come it was out. A fully baked in part of the experience. I, yeah, watching. I would watch Mad Men and then I would hope that uh, one of them had their review up. And then when other people would write ancillary pieces about it, I would love it. I would read every single Mad every single Mad Men recap. I read and thought about and debated, and my wife and I would pass them back and forth, and David Levine and I would pass them back and forth, and we'd argue about it, and we would cite uh, our reading of the episode, and you know, um, I would follow it on Twitter. So when the finale happened, and Andy Greenwell didn't like the finale, that's uh, probably the angriest tweet I ever sent. Was at Andy? I might have emailed him, and I, like over Mad Men. Yeah, maybe yeah. think I never need to, and I love Andy, and he's brilliant. And, but it made me think I never need to listen to what that guy says about TV again because he didn't like Take the that, finale of um, Mad Men. I just said he's brilliant. Take that. But I remember saying like, oh, that's good. That releases me from caring about that ever yeah. again. Um, and I was just a pure fan, not a fellow professional. And that's what I love about the so. Um, what I what gets me annoyed, there was a recapper this year who I felt really, truly didn't understand the show. And all the recappers were so nice and they did, they they loved the show and like, you know, the It'd be show hard did incredibly well in the didn't rating. didn't love the show. You kind of have to be a fan to make it work. And I imagine if you didn't, it'd be uncomfortable for you. But there was one recapper who I really felt like at the core liked the show for the wrong reasons and didn't actually get it. Didn't have any idea what Dave and I were doing. That was annoying to me. That's when it's frustrating. And that's when you have to just not, I mean, Glenn Kenny would say to me, I have no business even commenting on it, that that the criticism isn't for me. It's for everybody but me. So you're not looking at the numbers, but you are definitely reading what people have to say about your I show. I love and, engaging and, and, and inve- It sounds like you're investing hours a week in consuming, right? Between the, the podcast and reading the, maybe well, it's not hours. No, it's not hours. You're, it's you're a fa- total you're a fast of, reader. I'm a really, really fast reader. No, it's an hour and a half, right? The podcast is an hour. And then it's a half hour reading all the recaps. Yeah. And you do you give the Ringer guys feedback on their feedback? Well, I mean, it is a fascinating point, right? In that, because although I'm not a member of the working media in that way, yeah. I've done enough journalism that I- I'm sitting in your podcast office right here? Yeah, I'm a podcaster. I have done enough journal, you know, I covered the masters for Sports Illustrated this year. 
I am a journal, I'm journalist adjunct in yeah, a certain yeah. way. And I wrote for the Grantland from the very beginning of Grantland. So I do kind of, Sean Fennessy and I are friendly and Simmons and I are friends for uh -huh. 20 years. But, but we do separate. So those guys don't ever, I never know what they're going to say about the show. I never know if they're going to like it. There have been movies that they haven't liked. Um, I mean, Simmons personally won't slam a movie of ours, but if he might not fucking cover a movie of ours. Yeah. And if a fact is wrong on the show, you know, if a fact was misstated, uh, or if they say this is the first, you know, uh, it's the first time we heard the character Tyga's name. I caught that one. But that's a mistake. I know, Tyga was I know, said in I the know. second season. So then the name. And so then, then, I, then I heard them correct it. That yeah. was you correcting them? That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I don't know, however I did it. I wrote, um, I wrote Mallory, I think. And I was like, oh, but just by the way. Or so I wrote that, Sean. So that I, wasn't a super fan. It may have, some super fans may have also written in. So super you, fans but, do. I see it on Twitter. You. The super fans will write to me that there was a mistake or something like that. But then I can carry their water. It's so great. Um, also, there's no super fan bigger than Mallory Rubin. She's, she's the biggest hardcore. super fan, I think. It's a little intense. It's awesome. We're talking about writing. I was asking you off air about the research for food specifically. But, oh, but, sure. Yeah. But research generally, right? So yeah. how much time, Aaron, Andrew Sorkin is, is the, what's his formal title here? The, the show. I think in the third season, he was a producer on the show, but he hasn't been involved in the show so, since so the pilot. Is, right, so he's not feeding you stuff. So where, no. how much time are you guys spending figuring out mechanics of business, mechanics of we have social life? So each season we have technical advisors, at least one person who was at one time an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District. One year we had someone from the Eastern District. We always have people who are super savvy about... Um, the world of finance. And then on, we have those, we have a person in each of those areas on the payroll as uh, a season long consultant. And you bring them in because you look, we know we're going to do an IPO. We're in, yeah. Help us figure out how this could work or would work. Or yeah, we, we want to understand what a short squeeze would feel like, but, or how a short squeeze would be structured. And of course, we're all doing tons of reading. I mean, we have the Slack is just, I mean, we're tons of articles yeah. and all that stuff. But also from the first season, and I, and I, and I would say this was the biggest, you know, uh, in the very, very beginning, Andrew did introduce us to a couple of hedge fund guys when we were writing the pilot. And then David and I have kept those relationships up and then met many more hedge fund managers. And I assume that the door, they're, come, they're knocking, right? They want to be involved. They want to come in. Um, and a couple of these billionaire hedge fund managers have become something like friends. And so you can, we can call them and, and ask them. And so Mark Lazary gave us some lines that helped us understand a certain character who was on the show last year. And other people will give us how they felt when something, a stock was going in the wrong direction. And also, you know, you really have to, it's, it's almost impossible for us as regular people to understand what it is to live as a nation state, an ind the individual as nation state, which is what these billionaires are. And so spending some time with them, going to their estate, seeing how they deal with their people, seeing what the kind of, uh, the particular brand of freedom they practice, you can't really imagine it. You you kind of have to witness it, and this has so uh, allowed us to witness. You're pulling a ride along is is going to a Connecticut hedge fund guy. Yeah, it's a mansion. Yes, and when you're creating the show, right? So you've done the research because you, then you see the professional tennis player 
who was once ranked top 10 who lives in his guest house. How great is that? And so you, you get to see what that life looks like, what it does yeah. and doesn't look like. And then what's the tension between saying, well, this is what it really looks like. And if we wanted to do it faithfully, it should look like this versus we need to make something that's going to work on TV and, and a bigger audience is going to Well, get. sure, with the stock stuff. But we learned our, from our early movies, you know, the more specific you are and the more accurate you are to the real thing, somehow the more universal it feels, people recognize it. You never lose by being super specific and super real, we, we don't think. Um, sure, are there times you might compress a time? The, probably the most common thing you do in any televised drama is compress the time frame. Yeah. But that's I mean, mostly where we're trying pretty hard to make it. Look, you know, there are also recaps about the reality level of the show and like that literally just look at how Could much does this, yeah, and we, we win on that all the time. Yeah. Because there was one that I was scratching my head about with Taylor and the Silicon Valley guy and Bobby ends up screwing both of them over, screws her over, right? And he's, he's, ending, he, he's getting his hands on capital um, it's, it's, it's the idea that all that language came from that. So that language all, about how you would value that right. investment, that's yeah. all real. That that's all real. That verified. So documented. me scratching my head, that's, that's me being wrong. Yeah. 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 When the idea is that by making that investment, there's already an IP, a pre, right. th that whole run. Yeah. That came from a, um, uh, somebody who structures those that's deals. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I learned something already. I didn't know. I remember when we found that solution, that was through talking to our consultant and saying, here's what we want to happen. How would you make up this short? Give us these different ways. And that we backed into that, the, 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 the specific thing, because by understanding from a consultant, how, how to make that. Okay. Work. I have more questions about reality, but first we're going to take a break. Okay. I'll be back in one second. Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and the smartest way to hire. Hiring is not most people's idea of fun. It can be exhausting. It's not easy. You know what? It's not supposed to be. If you aren't having tough conversations to make sure you get the right person for the job, you're not doing it right. But how can you stay focused on finding the most qualified candidates? I'll tell you, Zip Recruiter. Their powerful matching technology scans millions of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. And as applications come in, it spotlights the top candidates to save you time and make sure you never miss a great match. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So if you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter right now where you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That is the lowest risk price there is. Don't waste another second. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter and start putting the technology to work for you. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Hello, Recode Media listeners. I want to tell you about a new podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show. That's me, Arthur Brooks, and I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm making a new podcast with Vox Media. Now, as president of AEI, that's a Washington think tank, I see bitter disagreement all the time, and it's terrible. We need some way to disagree, not less, but better. So this is a series that looks at the art of disagreement. The first episode is out July 12th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most of all, subscribe right now. Back here with Brian Koppelman, still learning about the world. So I was asking about financial uh, accuracy. A big part of your show is 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 lifestyle, right? Yeah. Both how these rich people live, and then and then a lot of where they eat, um, which is 
great because you're a foodie and it seems like I don't is there a restaurant that you're highlighting that you have not been to or do you go sample everything there there might have been um yeah I'm sure there's been a joint that I haven't been in but I mean I'm there when we're shooting so yeah. I'm there and how are you occasionally saying you know what I would really like to go to x restaurant let's make a scene that's there no no I don't think so no. I mean no you're doing this research Again, what you're trying to do is figure out where these people would go and what those that signifies. And so you're looking at where these restaurants sit in the firmament, where these characters sit, and what the intersection of those things is. And what's available to the viewer is as much as the viewer brings to it. Right. Well, so the Nakazawa scene is really funny. This is the famous sushi scene. Yeah, but that's Wags. funny whether you... It doesn't matter, right? Wags right. acting in that way is great. And also he fills in the context for you, right? Yeah, but if you go further... Well, he mentions the egg, the tamago. Right. But if you've watched Jiro, and then if you've done a little reading and you understand that connection, it's that much richer for you. And that... Look, that's what we're trying to do. Mostly we're just trying to tell a really particular entertaining story. David and I are so freaking lucky that we get to do this with this insanely brilliant cast. And... Um, this incredible crew of ours. But, but I mean, imagine getting to write for Paul Giamatti and Asia Kate Dillon and Maggie Siff and Damian Lewis. It's crazy. And Dave Costable. So uh, that, look, we're trying to give these actors great stuff to do and set the scenes in places that make sense and that might offer additional commentary on the world that we're writing about. And the food, the fact that you get to hang out with Dave Chang or whomever... Is yeah, a, but again, a, so that's, a, I mean, listen, Dave Chang's an old friend of mine. And so that was a true joy, right? I, I went to, I am a person who spent a lot of time in the New York food scene. I mean, you're catching me three and a half weeks into like a keto Atkins oh, no. thing. You and seem in good spirits. it's working, but uh, so I've been out of the, I've been, you know, it's like uh, Sinatra not being able to go into Mama the joints not and, in the and, and in I, the can't, today. I can't go to noodle bar on keto. Um, but I love David Chang and I uh, love his restaurants. And, and, but, but more than that, right, we set that scene at Co. And the idea was that Axe bought the restaurant out. And so he's alone or had a relationship with David Chang instead of David Chang. Hey man, I need to come in when Co's not open. Would you and and he does a few of those, a right? A power play via restaurant, yeah. and and you announce this is the restaurant, and it's a big deal that he's here. Yeah, and you know that's something that people do. Gotta, it's an gotta, amazing thing to do. It's not something we can do, but it's something I bet, people I bet you do. can. About people, I assume people are now offering themselves up. I was offered the other night. Um, a chef offered, uh, in a high profile restaurant, offered that I could come have a dinner. Me and Dave, and one other person. On a night the restaurant was closed, they offered to open the joint just for us because they would like to ultimately be yeah, featured, yeah, yeah. I guess. In that, but I said, no, I no. can't. I would not. Unlike, you don't want to be in that world where you're trading dinners for. Never. I also, I'm just not that. I'm not. I mean, we're nothing. We're not, you know, Bobby yeah. Axrod. Uh, I mean, I'm. listen, uh, I was talking to somebody today and we were talking about the levels of sort of um, bad behavior we'd engage in. I will say I am probably one of my worst characteristics is. If, if I know somebody who, at a restaurant and they'll let me cut the line, I'll cut the line and I won't be guilty about it. But I can't go make you come to work on a day you're closed and in the hopes that you'll be on the show. I can't. I'm not a favorite trader. When, I should, I, if you're listening to this, you don't care. But um, we're going to probably have some spoilers here. So if you haven't watched season three, go back and watch it and come back. Yeah. When did you learn about Ortolan? 
oh my god, like in the book of lists or something when I was a kid. Yeah, I'd you never know? heard about it. So do you want to explain what it is in case someone cares? And uh, seen the show. It's this. Uh, well, now it turns. I mean, Succession then put it on Succession, to, but yeah. I didn't see the show. I just got tweeted about it. Uh, and you know what? Hannibal did it before we did, which I didn't know. And really? Someone told me that Hannibal. Did. I you never watched Hannibal, show? which is one of okay. the great TV shows. I never watched it, but they had fake Ortolan too. So everybody's done sort of, uh, you know. And this is a thing that obscenely wealthy people do: is eat this oh, yeah. semi. Well, famously. Um, uh, Semi-illegal little bird. You should. Not De Gaulle had this as his last meal. He had okay. like three of them or something like that. And it's a uh, or Mitterrand. Mitterrand, I guess, did it. And and um, yeah, it's a French thing, really. But yes, it's this decadent thing. None of us again like that. None of us will ever get to eat Ortolan. But the idea that um, these people can do that, uh, this bird that's eaten whole and soaked in brandy, is amazing. So. I watched that scene and never seen it. I had to Google it. And, and and then I'm watching Succession, which is another show about obscenely wealthy people. They also have an Ortolan scene in there. Um, should we make anything of the fact that there's two shows airing within months of each other that feature obscenely rich people eating super decadent slash illegal French food? Does it say something about where we're at as a culture or is that just random chance? I mean, I, the truth of the matter is, in the same way I didn't know that Hannibal did it, maybe they didn't know that we did it. Yeah. No, look, I think it's true. I think it's um, fairly true to the thing that, <laughs> that, I mean, Bourdain talked about, rest in peace, but Bourdain talked about an incredible night in France and Ortolan. And I, I think uh, there's not that much that regular, that we can't do in the world so that these people can do. That, that what, they, what they often want is to experience that which is incredibly difficult to experience. I was with a restaurateur the other day so it's not that you're spending was, a lot of money on something, it's spending something, buying something that regular people can't A restaurateur said get. the other day, one thing that you need to know about billionaires like this is they don't want to be an inclusive. This is his, as a restaurateur's opinion, this is not necessarily my opinion, but I found the statement fascinating. He said they want to be in exclusive restaurants. They don't necessarily want the best treatment in an inclusive place. That they want us to be in an exclusive environment. And you can treat them poorly, whatever, or not whatever. But I don't think you can really treat but, them poor. No, no, they want to be treated the best in the place that's But they want to be in the thing that you can't get to. Yeah, the room, the I mean, experience. the top of the room, it's, you know, the, 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 the room, the, the VIP room beyond the VIP room. So where I was sort of getting at is what do you think, how much of the appeal of billions do you think is specifically sort of the wealth porn? Like... This is what well, a really rich person lives I think the Ortolan thing like. is something different, right? The Ortolan was a way in the way we used it in the show. I mean, this is an episode when everything gets perverted in a way. The the uh, whole idea of justice, Wendy becomes compromised. And the key line in that scene is they say, uh, one is sublime, two is gluttony. And then Axe says, what's three? And Wiley says, let's find out. Yeah. Or at Wag says, what, what, what about, you know, we can have another. And... Why this is let's find out. And so th these are people, the idea is they're willing to go to a place beyond gluttony for their particular form of satisfaction, no matter who has to get drowned uh, in Armagnac as a, as a result of it, you know. And so for us, it was a symbolic thing. And that was, you know, much more than it was an example of, I mean, what we liked about it was the idea of it being a right of some sort, you know, and um, uh, R-I-T-E, right, yeah. right, you know, uh, and that they were engaging in this at this moment, this very heightened moment where everything was in jeopardy for Axe. This is the way Wags thought that he was going to 
uh, take Axe's mind off of his troubles or focus him in a different way or say a kind of a goodbye to him. And so, no, I, I mean, our show could go way further in the wealth porn. I think that people love to watch hyper-intelligent, hyper-verbal people um, who are charismatic and charming and who really love what they do and who love being in this contest and this game. And, and for us, what we're interested in is why America is willing to substitute uh, verbal acuity, charm, power, and wealth for true qualities of character like kindness and empathy. And we hope that by watching the show and getting off on it, when these characters do really bad things, it makes us all wonder why we're rooting for them sometimes. Because these are dark times and these people are living in these times and they are uh, they are very rarely doing that which they say they are doing. And yet we not only forgive them, we love them. What, what, I love What them. percent of your audience do you think is engaging with you in that fundamental question, which is clearly what you're trying to do? And what percent is like, that's a really cool house. There's a, there's an ad for, I don't know, one of the, one of the, one of the carriers is saying, Hey, you can, you can watch TV with us. And they're showing a clip from Showtime. And they, they show Bobby Axelrod walking around his Hampton house. And the guy on the couch goes, that's a really awesome house. And it's clear, they, they clearly think their audience thinks I, it's cool to look at cool stuff. I think that's a small. I, you think for it's me, small? I mean, my, what, everything that tells me, nobody's ever come up to me to talk about that. Yeah. People come up to me to talk about Bobby Axelrod and Chuck Rose and Wendy Rhodes and what they're going through and them as people much more. The only thing anyone's ever mentioned to me along those lines is the his and hers airplanes. That's the single only thing anyone's ever mentioned about that. And so when you, there's a, what's the line where they were where, uh, in the beginning of the I mean, season where, where, where they think they're going to lose everything and, and 300 why, million is not enough. Yeah, not enough, yeah, right? Well, I mean, that's intentionally why I think, But that's why I think, I think most of the audience long for the ride that Dave and I want them to be along for because we're- You want them to recoil at that line. You, yeah, you want them to ask themselves why they're still rooting for them and ask themselves why they kind of understand it. Why are they kind of like, that's gross. Give me 300 million. Hmm. I see why it's hard for them to live on three. Like, I want that entire conversation to be going on in your head when you're watching. And, and this is one of the rewards of Twitter. I can say that that, that conversation was going on in people's heads. I, I know it because I yeah. saw it. I saw it happen. When you write that line, do you think this is going to be a, this, people are going to chew No, on you this. have to, when you write the thing, you have to discipline. Again, if I were coming up now, it'd be different. But because of how we started... I'm able to divorce myself from all of it when I'm working. When I'm writing, man, I'm, I'm really just writing. It's the least intellectual part of the thing. It's the least calculated. The writing is the, the purest flow. part of the whole thing. That's when you're writing the dialogue, in particular the dialogue, the scenes themselves. So you've outlined it and that takes a lot of thinking because you're doing the story math. But when you're writing it, I mean, I'm sitting somewhere, I have giant headphones on, I'm listening to music loudly. I'm not here, I'm not. I'm not in the world of Twitter in that way. When I finish a scene sometimes, my pathetic version of taking a walk sometimes is to then go to Twitter and blow off steam. But then I'm fully back in this imaginary world. I mean, that's the incredible joy and luck of what I get to do for a living is I get to live in my imagination a lot of the time. We will be fully back in this conversation in one minute. Today's show is brought to you by Darn Tough Vermont. They make socks, they make awesome socks, and you guys know 
that I love socks. That's why I'm in the podcast game. Darn Tough Vermont Socks is chosen by 30 seconds of my podcast, so I can tell you how awesome their socks are. They believe an audience smart enough to listen to Recode Media must have discerning taste and a passion for quality products made without Russian interference. Darn Tough Vermont has been perfecting premium merino socks in Northfield, Vermont for nearly 40 years. They're so confident their socks will be the most comfortable, durable, best-fitting socks you'll ever own. They guarantee every single pair unconditionally for life. Those words are underlined and capitalized in my copy here so you know they must be accurate. In order to track the effectiveness of this ad, they're offering you 20% off your first purchase at darntough.com with the promo code MEDIA at checkout. That's darntough.com. Use the code MEDIA. Back here with Brian Koppelman, who's, uh, were you a smoker? You seem like a guy who would have walked around and smoked at one point after you finished the scene. No cigars no. when I was young. Cigars? My was dad was a big cigar smoker. Um, I smoked cigarettes for maybe nine months when I was in law school. My, I think last year of law school, I was going at night and the guys I studied with I was no threat to them, so I studied with the smartest guys in the law school, and they all smoked. So if you didn't, if you didn't do cigar, if you didn't cigarettes, what was your writerly neuroticism? My entire existence. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I mean, basically, you know. Um, no, I don't. I don't have a particular affect like that, other than the big headphones, which you look like a douche with big headphones. I mean, there's no Trendy real douche. way to be fifty. Jelani's no, got no, no. Big you can't be on. fifty-two years old. And look like I look and walk around with the big headphones without looking like um, a jerk, you know? And um, I love, I need music when I work almost all the time. Not all the time, but like almost all the time I need that. And like a lot of coffee. You did a thing back, uh, speaking of writing, you did a thing back when Vine existed where you were doing writing yeah. lessons via Vine. What was the, the impetus for that? The six-second writing lessons from Brian. Well, six-second screenwriting lessons. Well, but the, I mean, that was a tongue-in-cheek title. Yeah. But the, uh, what happened was it was in reaction. One of the things that drives me mad in the world is uh, fake experts, con people. Uh, I wrote a piece on my blog called... Um, about the screenwriting industrial complex, con men and the screenwriting industrial complex, because, uh, you know, these people set up in a Radisson somewhere and charge people to teach them how to write genre. And these are people who haven't written anything that's gotten made. Uh, and I was getting questions on Twitter from people uh, where the premise of their question was faulty. And, you know, they would say like, I know you have to write in a five act structure, but I'm wondering, and I'd be like, wait, who told you you have to write? Well, this guy who has this seminar, this script consultant, this reader. And so it got me annoyed and Vine had just come out and I just picked up my phone and looked in it and said, read screenplays, watch movies. I said, um, all, screenwriting, all screenwriting books are bullshit, all of them. Read screenplays, watch movies, let them be your guide. And I called it Six Second Screenwriting Lessons and I sent it out there into the world. And then like, it went nuts. And um, all these actors and directors and writers started retweeting it. And then I just did a bunch of them. And in the end, so what started kind of as a goof, what happened was I realized quickly that people wanted, they were desperate for permission. They just wanted permission to try, to try to find the most creative part of themselves and to express themselves, to tap into it without being told. They had to do it in some um, set and prescribed way and without believing other other ways of expression were proscribed or were not allowed. And 
that what they needed was uh, somebody who'd done it to tell them how hard it was to get over feeling like they didn't have permission. And that was me as a young person. And so I didn't feel like an artist when I was a young man. I felt like um, my artistic intentions were frivolous and maybe fraudulent and that I wasn't a writer. And it was only when I was 30 years old and I, Amy and I had had our first child and I realized I wanted to be the kind of dad who would come home and tell him and then eventually my daughter to be anything they wanted. I wasn't living that life and I had to break through and I found a way to do it by doing morning pages every day as described in Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. I learned how to get in a state of flow and to do the work every day. I realized I could give that gift back to people. I realized I could do it without um, any profit for myself I, and that I could maybe um, put a dent in this industry of con people. So I decided as long as I had something new to say, um, and as long as it was interesting to me and people were getting something out of it, I would do one a day. And so I did one of these a day for like 360 days. And at the end, um, I had over 65 million views on the vines. And so it was clearly something that people did want to, um, feel was this, the, the sense that Hollywood doesn't know that there are no experts, there are no gatekeepers. And I would tell the stories of my first script getting rejected or of the first musical artist I worked with when I was, before I was a writer getting rejected and how it's easy for gatekeepers to say no and how you have to be the one to tell yourself yes. It was really satisfying to do. And it, it probably led to the podcast that I did because the podcast the that moment. I do now, Let's The Moment, yeah. yeah, The Moment with Brian Cobbleman, because I, I realized that I wanted to talk to people who'd gotten the best out of themselves creatively and figure out when they wanted to give up and how they got through the moment they wanted to give up because every all of us have wanted to give up. And so what it felt like when they were at their low point and how they transcended that. And so I'll talk to people as diverse as, um, you know, I'll talk to Amy Mann, I'll talk to Colson Whitehead, I'll talk to uh, Seth Meyers or um, a fam Danny Meyer, you know what I mean? And, it's kind of and, the core story, right? I was down and then I got up. And and then well, I and the ways in which, well, and, and I'm, I'm eagerly interested in uh, what is it, you know, I was reading the Springsteen autobiography and that moment that he was on the cover of Time and Newsweek was really heavy for him. And Seth Meyers was then on the cover of those things. And I asked Seth about that. You know, what does that feel like? How do you actually recover from that kind of success and expectation? That's the flip side of it. I'm, and I'm, I've always been fascinated by that too. Who's the guy you want for that show or girl? There or are woman? two people yeah. that I want the most, maybe three. The three would be Michael Stipe, Haruki Murakami, and Barbra Streisand. And I assume you've asked some of them. Uh, yeah. And, Mike, and Michael all, Stipe's all. around. He's, he's fine to... I've had Mike Mills and Peter Buck. Yeah, uh, you're working your I, way I got it. I got to have Stipe. I got it. I wasn't planning on having a screenwriting discussion, but I'm just curious. Is there any advice about structure and stuff like that that people should be thinking about? And I'm only asking because I was went down a diehard rabbit hole last week. Well, he was great. Stephen E. D'Souza. And I ended up on great. a Dan Harmon Wikipedia page where he's explaining something about story structure and he's using diehard in each chapter and... Listen, everybody, my, my um, approach to this is like everybody has their way of doing it. I guess what I think is when you start thinking in a certain formal way about structure, that's fine. It should be ingrained in you, though. We all know how to tell a story. We all know what it is to have some crazy thing happen to us in the world. Come home and tell our roommate, our spouse, our significant other about the crazy thing that happened at work, on the road, wherever. And what happens when we do that? We have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Often we have a beginning, a middle, the thing you think is gonna happen that you lead them towards, and then holy shit, it's actually this other way that it ended. That's why we wanna tell the story, because it's strange but familiar and we're gonna tell it. 
So I think the more you can get people out of their heads worrying about that stuff and just know, hey, man, yeah, tell the story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And there should be some reversals and conflict in every scene. But um, I've ne- but, but also, although Dave and I don't make avant-garde stuff, we don't make really hyper-traditional stuff either. Billions is a very odd show. These two protagonists, there aren't like A, B, and C stories the way there are, I guess, in lots of shows. There's not really a good guy and a bad guy. It's a show with its own rhythm, its own meter, and its own story, its own sort of story flow. And I think our our movies also um, did don't necessarily have like Solitary Man, which is our best reviewed movie, and was you know made Roger Ebert's year on best list and New York Times year on best list and all that stuff when it came out. It's basically a movie with later. Someone told me, you know, that movie has two acts, really not three, even though most movies have three acts. And I think that's probably true. I just never thought about it when I was writing it. Dave and I directed it. I wrote it. And I never thought about it when I was writing it. I was just trying to tell the story. I'll say this, be entertaining when you write your stuff that, you know, don't indulge yourself, be entertaining, write the first draft for yourself, then keep refining it after you get the first draft written and be rigorous about it. We were talking about structure at the beginning of this, sort of accidentally. Um, how important is it for you to surprise someone with where the plot goes? It's a, it's not the apex goal, but it's a lovely thing to have happen. And, and do you want little surprises? Do you want big surprises? So if you watch season three, and again, if you haven't, you're listening to the wrong podcast this far in, right? kind of seemed from the beginning that there was going to, well, you said there's conflict between Taylor and, and Bobby Axelrod, right? And so you can sort of see where that's going to end up. Could could have gone a bunch of different ways, but it ended up in a way that you might have predicted. Are you okay if I thought that at the beginning of the season? We and put, that's where I mean, we up? put the hints in there. You, yeah, want, yeah. you want me to the be thinking viewer about it. Can, because the character stuff's more important, yeah. like the caring about them and understanding why or how or what is the pathology. But the season before, the, with the short and the, the ice juice, yeah. that was much more of a surprise. But yeah, each season, but um, I think it's, uh, we can't just try to recreate that. What we have to do is just go deeper and deeper into the characters. And there will be, look, you are right about that, but almost nobody saw the last moment with Chuck, Wendy, and Axe. Right. And so you got a delightful, surprising moment at the end of the season. You also got something that you could have thought might happen, but you didn't think Malkovich was going to be sitting there at Mason Capital at the beginning of that episode. So there's always going to be some element of, yeah, you want to be surprised. But LeQuentin said that the challenge in the postmodern era of doing any of this stuff is that the audiences are so aware and so smart. It's like when you're riding Space Mountain, you know, uh, you the first time you ride Space Mountain, the turns take you totally by surprise. You're in the dark. The fourth time, you know, you start leaning before yeah. the turn. So we have to understand where you might be leaning and then sometimes go the other way or sometimes let it go that way so that the ride feels fresh each time. You mentioned that last scene, it ends with the Velvet Underground. Yes, it does. The Underground song. I interviewed you, did a mini interview with you last year about music, you clearly enjoy the music as much as food when it comes to, to getting great songs in here. I think at the time you said Led Zeppelin was your big white whale. It's just very difficult. Like I said, it's hard, hard difficult to, get. to organize. Still didn't get them. Yeah. Is that still, is that still something you're trying to land or? It's, you con- no, it's, it's fine. If it shows up, yes, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. I would love to use the right Zeppelin song at the right time, but you really, you're not, you're, you're really trying to make these moments work. You know what I mean? So the perfect song for the perfect moment. So anyone come to you and say, you know, it's great that you're doing, you know, great, great 60s and 70s rock songs and also great, great recent rock songs and you got Craig Finn in there. Um, there should be more hip hop in here. There should be more of this or that or, or this No, I mean, episode seven reflect. ends with an insanely great Vince Staples song. Yeah. Um, episode three, 307 ends with a crazy Vince Staples song. 
No. I mean, we are, no. we, I mean, the first season we used Sly and the Family Stone and we've used Amy Mann and then we've used, like I say, Vince Stables. So, no, I mean, that, in general, working with Showtime is incredible in that they give us a tremendous, an astonishing amount of freedom to make the show. They're great partners. They give us notes. They, we have great conversations with them. But I would say distinct from any creative experience David and I have had with um, a financing entity, this is spectacular. Is there something you've wanted to do creatively that some that is too difficult uh, financially to pull off so far? No, you would. No, we're all grownups who've made stuff for a very yeah. long time. So we're not. No, I mean, we did that Metallica thing. That was insane. Yeah. You, what you do is you're responsible. So if you're going to do something crazy, you warn everybody way in advance and you figure out how you're going to pay for so it. So we're going to spend money season. going to China. Yeah. We'll figure I mean, out you just how have to those save money Listen, else. I think in any business, talk about where you don't want surprise. What you don't want ever is to surprise the people paying for you to execute what you're trying to oh, execute. Oh, by the way. So if you're, we're doing out, we're, we're ahead all the time. So the moment we had a big idea, we're calling Amy Israel, who's our creative exec at uh, Showtime. We're getting on the phone with Gary and David who run Showtime. The three, we're all talking about it. Is this worth it? How would we do this? It's a constant conversation. But like I'm saying, this is a singular situation. It's a great conversation. They're making the same show we're making. How great is that? It's lucky. And you don't feel ratings pressure? No. You have your I, standard like writer's neuroticism, but that's kind of it. I have tons of neurosis about doing it well. Yeah. I don't want to let people down. That's terrifying. Well, maybe maybe it's the diet, but you, you Ooh, look you look you look calm. And letting these actors down would kill me too, man. I mean, we look getting to make a television show that's your dream show, that's the exact show you and your lifelong best friend want to make, is so rarefied, such an absurd privilege, such that uh, of course uh, uh, I wouldn't be normal if I didn't have fear or anxiety about losing it. The thing is that. Um, giving even a moment's thought to that is useless. You have to just make the show. You the are, only way to keep making the show is to make the show. You're a gambler. You're a gambling I'm guy. I'm a poker player. Poker player. Rounders, great poker movie. You're in one of the great poker scenes in Michael Clayton. Yes, I am. Which is one of my favorite all-time movies. I loved being a part of you it. You get to rip apart uh, uh, George Clooney. Really fun. Which is a rare experience. Uh, how do you view poker and gambling versus the Wall Street characters you're writing about? Is it the same... Well, uh, if I, I mean, I, I, this is probably a longer conversation than, than we have the time for, but um, they're closer to poker players than to gamblers because I separate poker from gambling. And um, because, you know, most gambling games, the, the numbers tell you you can't win. And in poker, if you're better, you can win over the long haul because of uh, my, you know, gam the, over the long haul, game the variance skill. gets smaller. And so it's a game of skill. Yeah, like great poker players, these people understand game theory and they understand they understand numbers and they understand people. And so I think there are skills that, uh, I mean, a bunch of hedge fund people are um, world-class poker players. I would assume so, yeah. And some world-class poker players uh, have gone to work, some of the young superstar poker players retired from poker and gone to work for some of the biggest hedge funds. So there's definitely, you're right, definitely a lot um, of commonality. There. And you did a poker game, was it last season or the season before? Season two. Season two. So that must have been a great itch to scratch. But I assume we, were, we only get one of those. That We've done it. Okay, good. Yeah, We've done this. This took me a year of cajoling you, so thank you. Thank you, man. You're very prepared. And this I is appreciate great. it. I really dig what you do, and I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Well, it's your, it's your house. I would hope you I mean, happy. on your show, like thank in you. their ears now. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks to man. you guys for listening. 
Again, if you like it, tell someone else about it. Check thanks. out my podcast, too, Check The it. Moment. We're trying Brian to, you should come work at Vox Media. Uh, thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media, which sell the ads, so you can listen to this show for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show. Thanks to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson, and Jelani, who came up town with me to record this with his big headphones. Thanks, Jelani. Thanks to you guys. See you next week. <laughs>